0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Brendan Cassidy, founder and CEO of Cosell.io and multiple-time head of sales at great Silicon Valley companies. Today, we'll be covering three main topic areas with Brendan. First, the metrics that matter to a B2B SaaS or cloud VP of sales at each stage of the early part of the journey. Second, field sales versus inside sales versus partner sales which are most relevant, why and how do you execute it? And third, the value to paying it back and paying it forward. Brendan, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast.
1: Yeah, Ray, I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me on. i happy to uh, spend some time with your community here. As you said, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called CoSell that's uh, trying to help drive and create a platform around referral selling and warm introductions for sales, sales organizations and revenue generation. Been uh, at this a while. So most of my career sort of on the startup side uh, was an early employee at LinkedIn. Depending on who you ask, somewhere in the first 30 employees, really like first hire and like the go to market side. So it really kind of built the sales organization at LinkedIn. Back uh, many many years ago, <laughs> I guess in our in our world, it's like 2005 2006, which was a great experience to be involved in. Obviously, at what became a great company, and to be sort of involved in the room when you know some pretty big strategic decisions were made was a great experience in my career and something that I've certainly leaned on many times. After that, as VP of sales for a company called EchoSign, through um, quite a bit of growth there, and we were acquired by Adobe in 2011. And then spent almost three years at Adobe post acquisition, and then more recently, I was the fifth employee, VP of a Worldwide Sales for a company called Talkdesk, which is in the uh, burgeoning sort of support cloud. And they actually just recently got about a ten billion dollar valuation, which is pretty exciting. And then was also founding advisor for a company called Gong, which is just got a seven billion dollar valuation, and I helped. Literally, was in the basement with their founders, sort of bringing their first fifty customers on. So yeah, that's who I am. <laughs>
0: What a great ride that you have. And it's interesting. Previously, I hosted one of the co-founders of LinkedIn on the podcast, Constantine Gerica. And yeah. one of the things I love that he's shown is when you guys would take pictures of yourselves with holding up 1 million members, yeah. or 5 million members, or 10 million members. And now what? Is it like 600 to 700 million members?
1: Yeah. It's so it's certainly north of 500 million, I guess you could say on a path to a billion probably. And obviously part of Microsoft. I mean, what a great acquisition for Microsoft, considering I think LinkedIn's revenue. I can't remember what their revenue was most recently, but it was pretty impressive. Just read a
0: report that it might be worth like, gee whiz, eight to 12 times more than it was when Microsoft bought it. But let's look at your experience, Brent, because I think our living audience would really benefit from your early stage experience at highly successful companies. And the first question I have for you is, are there some common sales leader challenges that you've seen at the major inflection points of an early B2B technology company? What are those challenges that you think ahead of sales, ahead of revenue needs to be prepared for?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely commonalities amongst all the companies I've you know, sort of worked full-time for. And then I've advised, advised or consulted for probably 40 others at, at varying points. So it's actually a pretty broad sample size. And some of it's not even like directly related to what you would typically think a VP of sales would be responsible for, which is sort of, I think one of the things, sort of unknown factors, unless you've been at that stage in a startup, you're going to have your hands in a lot of things. And I actually was talking about this with somebody recently, one of the most common themes I've seen in my career and amongst even fairly successful startups is the team has a really hard time describing exactly what problem they're solving and why. And I think you go to like, even back to LinkedIn, LinkedIn obviously was when I joined really just a pure consumer internet company, right? And so it was, okay, what what are we going to sell? And what is the problem that we're solving? What is the market that we're entering into? and How are we going to transform that? And obviously in that world, it was, you know, the monsters and hot jobs and career builders were considered to be sort of the status quo and sort of whatever you want to call it, the recruitment tech cloud. And so, yeah, but like at every stage really Being very, very clear about being able to talk about, hey, this is who we are. This is why we exist. This is the problem that we solve. This is why we're incredibly passionate about solving it. People have a really, really hard time conveying what that is. If you can't communicate what that is at like a founder level, then you can't sell it. And so that's really like one of the things with you know I would say eighty percent of the companies I've been involved in on some capacity was really like, hey, let's just. Let's have a very clear black and white impossible to misinterpret what we're doing, what problem we're trying to solve, and how we're trying to solve it. Because if you can't do that, if you can't describe why you're doing it, I don't know why you could be able to describe why somebody should buy it. So that would be one for sure.
0: Well, let me dig into that just a little bit further because we all talk about product market fit today. Mm -hmm. Do you think you can truly establish some level of product market fit without really having that problem that we're solving and the the benefit of why to solve it are the two inextricably linked
1: i would say if you can't describe what problem you're solving and why you're solving it and you reach product market fit then that would really just kind of be an accident so there's certainly companies out there that have been successful and built you know pretty big customer bases that still sort of struggle to articulate exactly who they are and what they're doing right? But it's usually companies that have you know some sort of freemium product, right? Some sort of freemium product, pretty transactional. Maybe there's like multiple value points for multiple users, that kind of thing. It's usually those scenarios where people would struggle to communicate what they do and why it's important and achieve some some level product market fit. But yeah, I would say you have to be able to communicate what you're doing and why, and why you think it's a big problem. Because, you know, again, like when you're a 10 person startup, Maybe saying, hey, we're trying to solve a problem that nobody's really ever tried to solve before, then not being able to say what you're doing and why it's important and be able to put a flag in the ground around that stuff is, you know, there's no way, right? You're dead.
0: Well, let's go to the next one because now you're getting the first, you know, 5, 10, 20 customers. And I'm really talking about kind of considered purchase in that mid-market up to enterprise, not your true SMB. So, what's the next challenge, the most common challenge you've seen beyond getting the common understood definition of the what why and how?
1: Well, obviously, you have to want to build like your first bench of customers, obviously, which usually would be a good idea if the founder or at least one of the founders sort of brought your very early customers in because I think that helps create like a you know much cleaner sort of evolution towards hiring sort of like your first VP of sales. You' probably hire one or two salespeople before you hire a VP of sales anyways. Which is very difficult, by the way, especially when you have sort of a founder driven sort of sales order. But yeah, I would say, depending on your price point, you're going to want your founder or co founder to probably bring your first 10 to 15 customers in and then bring, or at least be very actively involved in that process. Because most of the startups I've seen where the founder or co founder is not involved in sort of early growth, they really struggle to bring in a sales leader that could figure it out on sort of on their own. So I would say, First 10 to 15 customers hire two salespeople, which quite frankly, having like pretty different profiles for those people, I think is good because the reality is you're not entirely sure yet what type of person is going to be successful here. And then once you can get sort of two reps that can hit a number on some level, then I think you can think about bringing in like your first sales leader, your first head of sales or VP of sales which is also really, really hard to do and is well, generally missed about 90% of the time To startups, I would say. Their first EP of sales probably lasts less than a year.
0: Okay, well, let's double-click on that because that's real important for the founders and earlier stage companies in our listening audience. Okay. Number one, I see... A trend of people not wanting to hire two sales reps early on after the founder led sales, but trying to get that hybrid, you know, VP of sales who really is a superstar closer and maybe have them bring in one more person. Do you think having the VP of sales as a quota carrying closer is a mistake in that first step after founder led sales?
1: Yes. There is the title called a sales leader, right? The title is really not. For me, that important. It is for the person, it's important, right? Most likely whoever you hire to be your first sales leader is is gonna want a VP of title. But if it's a head of sales, it could be somebody that is sort of an up and comer, right? Call it a, you know, sort of get somebody on the ascension, so to speak. And generally, I would encourage that kind of hire for your first VP of sales. So it's probably, you know, hiring somebody that has been a like a director or head of sales or a number two under a VP of sales that you respect or a startup that's had some level of success, I think is a really good profile to look at for that first sales leadership role. I do think that they should own a number. Like their focus should be on owning sort of an overall number of growth. Obviously, if they're likely going to be a lot more hands-on at that stage than they would at a later stage, which is fine. But like, I'm not a huge fan of having a, your first VP of sales or head of sales have sort of carrying their own bag. Because on some level, they're how do you view them beyond sort of the individual contributor if you're founder? right? Which can be problematic because what if they're successful, right? Anyways, yeah, I think generally your first VP of sales, you want them to own a number and they can, you know, and they're going to probably have a couple salespeople there. And if they want to be super hands-on on sort of getting you to that number or not, I mean, the point is, is that it's hitting that number, not necessarily an individual bag.
0: Now, Brennan, you said something else, which I think some of our audience might be shocked at, that 90% of... The first VP of sales hires were That's actually true. fail and not make it. And I think most people already know that the average tenure of a VP of sales in B two B tech is around eighteen months, depending on which what think, research. Which,
1: which a lot of people think is too high a number, by the way.
0: Yeah, I've I've seen fourteen to eighteen, but let's dig into why.
1: That's a whole conversation that <laughs> could last a long time. Yes, I'm happy to go as as shallow or deep on that if, as you want.
0: Go ahead and rip away. This is really valuable.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. First off, you know, one of the biggest reasons why, which is I I definitely see investors and startups, startup founders sort of moving away from this through the years. But right, traditionally it was like, let's go get that person out of Salesforce or Oracle or one of those types of organizations, which has literally zero commonality with the startup in any way, right? And so when you're hiring a VP of sales and somebody that's primary success in an organization where you know they never had to describe, they never had to sell who they were as a company, or they never had to describe what the problem was. They never had to create their own demand. There's all these things that are happening in a startup that you just don't see in a large software technology company, whether it's Salesforce or Oracle or Adobe or whatever else, right? There's ninety-five percent of the job is just stuff that do not do or touch ever in a big company. And so that's a common mistake is hire somebody out of a big, massive software company and expect them to come into your startup and sort of figure out how to be successful. So that's one mistake. Once you move beyond that, say, okay, that's not the profile we're looking then it uh, opens up the opportunity. It also makes it harder in a way, right? Because you can't rely on some of the traditional things that people used to rely on. So can you find a VP of sales that has run sales in a startup that found success, right? I would say that's you know, at a very baseline level. Can you find that? That's an ideal fit. Because they've probably been in a situation where there was problem, solution, all those things were probably pretty undefined on some level. Not a lot of customers, not a lot of demand, organic demand. So they probably had to create and drive a lot of their own demand where they had to, you know, sort of craft slash invent a narrative that didn't exist before. And so obviously somebody that's had a real startup success, you know, and taken a startup from sort of early stage to some level of scale or ultimate success or true success. But guess what? Everybody's looking for that person. And so, and the number of people that have actually done it, there's not an infinite supply. And those people that have done it, they know they've done it. They know they're in demand and they're really, really hard to get. And so that's when, you know, I talked about that sort of up and coming profile. I always tell a founder, you should have sort of four profiles, right? There's the been there, done that. There's the been there, but maybe not done all of that. There's sort of your big company profile. And then you, there is ran sales and a startup that didn't make it. Those are kind of the four profiles. And you really, you're probably going to have to, talk to all four profiles.
0: Well, let's move on to this is the metrics that measure up podcast. So you've got this company that's established product market fit. They've done a really nice job of defining their business value, why people buy them, how they're differentiated, and they're ready to scale. They're going to go from that one to 2 million ARR to 10 million and then to 25 million. Are there any specific metrics kind of both leading indicators and of course the lagging indicators that you think are the most valuable for a VP of sales to have in that kind of one to ten, two to ten million dollar growth range?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously sort of can you build and create scalable demand? I think is a huge metric, right? And how you define demand or what the different sort of funnels for demand are varies by the company, right? Some companies are very sort of marketing driven. So marketing is going to have, you know, some sort of broad MQL target that then that needs to become like an SQL target. Some companies are all outbound where there's no organic demand and they have to go out where literally sales owns the responsibility to create and drive all the demand as well as close all those opportunities that, that come through that. But yeah, I believe that that's the primary piece, which is how much demand do we need to create per rep to have some level of success? And then, you know, obviously all the metrics can sort of work off of that sort of fulcrum, right? So what if it's like, hey, we know that if we create sort of 20 net new qualified opportunities a month or 10 qualified net new opportunities a month per rep, we know that they'll close three at an average deal size of X. And thus, you can sort of roughly sort of translate that into how many salespeople can we support given the amount of demand that we can create. I think that's a pretty good metric to be at the centerpiece of growth for a while from one to 30, probably, which is how much demand we can create. And then also who's who's responsible for driving that demand, which is important because if you go back 15, 20 years, it used to be marketing. Right, that used to be a marketing-driven sort of marketing, full 100% ownership of that at one point. Now it's almost completely reversed, where sales owns it much of the time. So I would say that would be it, which is qualified net new opportunities as you know a pretty big metric to put at the centerpiece of your strategy to scale.
0: So we got kind of the pipeline and yeah. definitely the. Kind of leading indicators to pipeline. Maybe it's your marketing qualified lead to sales qualified lead, sales qualified lead to at least stage one as a qualified opportunity. What do you think about a metric like pipeline coverage ratio in that kind of one to 10 million? Does it really matter that you know, hey, to get $500,000 or a million dollars of new ARR next quarter, I need to have a 5X pipeline coverage ratio? Is that pretty important, Brendan?
1: Yeah, but those are super variable stats, super variable metrics, right? To say that, hey, I need 5X coverage or 3X coverage or whatever it is that really is like requires some historical data to tell you. I mean, you can guess, right? You can guess, or you could just come up with a metric out of thin air and say, hey, I need 5X coverage, but like, that's not really scientific. There is an actual number there of like how much coverage you need and saying I need 5X coverage is pretty arbitrary, Right. Totally
0: get it, and unless you have multiple quarters of operating history where you can say, "Hey, if I go into a quarter with five million of pipeline opportunity consistently, I know I'm going to close twenty to twenty-two percent of that, so I know I could do a million or a million point two, and then you can reverse engineer that and say, if I need two million of closes next quarter, I need eight million of qualified pipeline going into it, the quarter."
1: It is. I, I reverse engineering is a great way to come up with some slightly truthful metrics, you know, in the, in a lot of the, you know, sort of whatever 0 to 20, 0 to 30 range of growth, but there's a lot of things we say we do in sales leadership that we say are like science that are pretty arbitrary in fact.
0: Right. Well, you know what they say, Brendan, lies, damn lies and statistics <laughs> or data. You can tell any story you want if you're good yeah. with data. So let me ask you this question with the success you've had, yeah. is there a metric that the CEO or CFO, he said, "Hey Brendan, I really need you to meet this metric." That you're like, "What a stupid metric is!" I.e., your least favorite sales metric you've had to manage to.
1: I mean, I think anytime your CEO is in the weeds of like, you know, like how many calls your team's making a day, that kind of stuff, right? Those kind of metrics, <laughs> how many calls, how many emails, and all the rest. I would say most VPs of sales would say, oh, "This is not really where I want to be right now." Yeah. So I would say like, yeah, when you have a CEO that's been like, Hey, your team is like literally tracking like how many calls and how many emails a team is sending on a day-to-day basis, which by the way, a lot of that's empty activity, quite frankly, it's that kind of stuff that really most VPs of sales don't really want to be in that situation.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And by the way, when you talked about that kind of, I'll call it fake activity importance, you know, some of my best sales development reps I've ever had on my team did half of the outbound activity but twice as the output, because it was more considered thoughtful, kind of researched out outreach versus mm-hmm. shotgun. Just try to get hundred people a day. And if they answer the phone, I'm not sure what I'm going to say to them. Right?
1: Yeah. We've reached yeah. a point now where everything, a lot of what people are doing in sales organizations, they're always trying to supersize it of like, how do I mass produce a bunch of emails to make them look personalized or a bunch of calls to make them look personalized? It's just flat out not effective anymore. Right? Like we could say, Oh, it's got sort of declining throughput and you know, you have diminishing or it just doesn't work. And like, that's the one thing I'm sure of a lot of our, these activities, you know, call them empty activities or activities that are not strategic in any way. Everybody's done them to the moon and back now and customers have figured it out. They just avoid it entirely.
0: Let's do what a lot of both great entrepreneurs and companies do early on, and that's pivot a little bit. And I'm going to anchor on something you said about kind of that meaningless outreach. I saw a post of yours, and I think you were commenting on a post by Scott Lease, who is a big sales influencer on LinkedIn. And it sounded like you were agreeing that instead of continuing to perpetuate these SDRs as being your primary outbound engine, that full-cycle AE so responsible for the outbound outreach lead generation all the way to close might be the way to go in the future. So tell me a little bit more about is that accurate what I caught and why do you think we might be at that transition point?
1: Yeah, I think Scott calls it the full cycle AE or the full stack AE or something like that and certainly I think the SDR function is necessary and like that's not going away. Like I'm in no way am I a proponent of sort of the role of an SDR organization in a company and a company's growth and success doesn't exist anymore because it does. It's that it shouldn't be burdened with the entire responsibility, right? So for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, is it your best foot forward as a company to have 23-year-old kids, you know, with a minimal amount of experience being the sort of first point of contact with your most sort of potential strategic customers? No, it's not it's a terrible representation right by the way when you're firing a you know 10 email sequence into the cmo of like a company that's like a top 10 top 20 target for your company it's your absolute worst flip forward and it's a i don't want to be too strongly worded around it it's just bad business and so who would be a better representation of that a, a salesperson that you have sort of interested to tell your story and tell your narrative you know in its most deepest intimate ways or somebody that knows probably like sort of surface level information around what the company does you know so what is the most strategic way to engage our customers is you know probably have your Aes engaging your most strategic targets and have your SDRs focused on like more transactional base absolutely think that's the way that we should be going yeah and so like that doesn't mean I think Aes should be engaging in the same level same way of prospecting as your SDrs they should not Right. That's where I think some people miss the point is what can you be doing that's more strategic? Are you doing your most strategic stuff in the way that you're going to market as a company? And that's a yes or no question for most. But, you know, I can tell you 90 plus percent. No, they're not. They're ignoring most of, if not all the strategic paths to market. And they've simply settled on like a transactional sort of mass consumption sort of approach to it. And it's just for a long time, I've just fundamentally disagreed with it. And I think, you know, certainly when I talk to sales leaders around the world, generally everybody agrees.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, Brendan. I, I'm i going to tell you what I used to do with my organizations and you told know if I took it too far. But I actually did want the AEs to focus on those targeted strategic accounts within their territory or industry, depending on how we segmented. But I actually gave them a goal of 20% of your qualified pipeline needs to be self-generated and mm-hmm. 30% of your closes need to be from self-generated pipeline and I'll pay you a higher rate for self-generated closes. What do you think of going down to that level of measurement and incentive?
1: I mean, I think it's, it's gutsy. In the modern era, I think it's a great idea, by the way. I mean, I think its intent is all the right stuff. Most VPs of sales wouldn't back it up, though. <laughs> they would say, hey, you should be doing these things, but most would not change their comp to reflect it, but I, I, I can't say that I disagree with it, to be honest. Now, the question is, you know, how are your AEs generating some of their own pipeline? And I think that's sort of the stuff that I'm spending my time on now and what I'm doing at CoSell. For me, it's just like, I want to make that as easy as possible, right? Leveraging sort of existing assets to do it, but like where I've seen it done and it's done incorrectly, right? As it's, it's you say, hey, AEs, you need to create of your own pipeline, well, they go out and they just do the same stuff the SDRs are doing, right? They upload a list and then they click send on outreach or sales loft or whatever else. and It's some mass sort of thread or cadence or whatever it is. And if that's all they're going to do, I'd rather the SDRs own that, right?
0: Yeah, it's got to be strategic. And quite frankly, Brennan, I think they need to do it in partnership with marketing where you have a real strategic account-based program, where you have content specifically tailored to those high-valued targets? Do you agree that they should do it in partnership with their marketing colleagues?
1: Should be, yeah. At one point, at a, a guy named Bill Bench, who was the VP of sales for a company called Marketo, you probably know Bill.
0: No, I know B- Bill. I know Bill's dad, who was at Oracle.
1: Okay, there you go. It's a small world in our community, I guess. But you know, I think Bill wrote something about how, like, I think it was like outbound sales is dead or something like that. He wrote this like 12 years ago or something like that. But now it's shifted all the way to the other side, right? Here, I can tell you this. I passed on a lot of jobs and I know other VPs of sales who passed on a lot of jobs. I'm talking hundreds where they were going to walk into a situation in which they owned hundred percent responsibility to drive all demand. That's not a good situation to walk into as a sales leader. Because that's its own thing, right? And so when sales owns all of it, marketing owns none of it, no, it's no good. That's just a bad ratio. The number of companies that have succeeded in that scenario, you can count them on less than 10 fingers, right? And I can give you on more than 10 fingers, the number of startups that have never been able to drive any type of organic or sort of marketing driven demand that tried to sort of brute force it all the way and just didn't get there. And they were some incredibly talented VPs of sales and talented teams, but like, it's just too big a burden to make the market and then capitalize on it all yourself. I could go on this all day. And and the problem is, is that there's so many, so much technology, so much venture capital flowing out there that like, what are the odds any one startup is going to have any organic, (laughs) demand? right? Well, to
0: to your point, Brendan, when you have 8,000 now hitting almost 9,000 MarTech vendors and 5,000 going to 10,000 sales tech vendors. There's a lot of noise out there. And one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the podcast is you've had experience of having to build that pipeline and help scale a company from the beginning. And now you're looking at another channel of potential pipeline, and that is referral sales. So can you talk a little bit about man, what stimulated you to do this and what it is?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all the stuff I talked about, right, Which is that you talk to so many companies today and you're like, well, most good VPs of sales, one of the first questions I'll ask is how many leads, you know how many leads do you guys get a month? right? And that's recently at zero, right? And so I was sort of that approach of like I didn't want to make a thousand calls. I wanted to make ten. I always wanted to come in warm or at least with the appearance of warm. like through a relationship, through a referral, something I could reference which would give me credibility in the door. And it makes this job so much easier when there is some sort of reference point in your sales profit process. And so what we're trying to do is just make sort of referral selling and relationship selling like incredibly easy for any company that wants to do it. That's I would say that at a 50,000 foot level, that's what we're trying to do. Um, Is
0: that from referrals from people inside your company or even outside your company to get referrals?
1: Yeah. So referrals from investors, advisors, influencers, basically anybody that has any kind of sort of vested interest in your success. And by the way, there's for any one company, there's quite a few people that sort of fit that description. And so we sort of allow them to sort of like connect their networks with your network as a company in a way that, you know, allows you to kind of sell through them and sort of leverage them of which they're all willing to do. And then we also have this like influencer community that really sort of helps flywheel the early stages. Yeah, but we have a group of former like VPs of sales and operators Tons of other VPs of sales, same thing on the marketing side, same thing on the side. We have our own networks that we can sort of connect people with where they can drive direct production and referral to companies that they want to sell to. So that's the world we're trying to create. So, step one in that process was concerning yourself. So,
0: you know, it's really interesting, Brennan, and I think this is going to be important for our listening audience. So, there was a lot of ideas out there today, and there's ideas from 10, 15, 20 years ago that didn't work, and now they may be more appropriate in this environment. In fact, I think you worked with a good friend of mine back in the mid-2000s named Chris Roon at Spoke Software. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that, that's a heck of a reference right there. I, like I thought that. it would be, but yeah, wasn't I, this I...
0: part of what they were trying to accomplish back in 2004 and 2005?
1: Yeah. I mean, through a little bit, you know, sort of different way, right? So Spoke was trying to, I guess, maybe sort of back into the graph and sort of maybe a non-opt in a way. And what we've done is we just created the graph. We brought everybody in and made them partners kind of, so to speak. So our graph, our you don't have to kind of back into it, but certainly for sure. And one of our sort of our lead seed investor was also a Spoke investor. Right. And was on the board for Spoke back in the time that I was there. It's a long time ago. And most people listening to this never heard of Spoke, by the way. (laughs) But it was it was where I was before LinkedIn. But yeah, I think trying to solve this problem, right, which is making referrals really, really easy for companies to access and find. It's the world that I want to live in. And that's why I did it. You know, it's just because no more cold calls, please. You know, you want an introduction here, you can have it.
0: I already see your logo. It's like what Mark did at Salesforce with no software. You've got the no cold calls. I love it, Brendan.
1: Hey, I just came up with, so if you want to patent it, you can. But that's the world that I want to live in. It's personal. And it, you know, it's a behavioral change, right? And so we're in that stage where everybody generally understands that this is the direction they should go, right? And obviously for us, it's they need to go now, right? And so... But yeah, we're doing well. We have great early customers. You know, I'd say our customers believe both in what we've built and what we're building. And our vision of this is that, you know, you can have this sort of referral, aggregated referral network within your company that you, you guys own. It's proprietary. That's extraordinarily valuable. And I would say more valuable than sort of any go-to-market technology in the sales cloud. If we can make this vision a reality, it's what we're trying to do.
0: Well, that is part of the fun of being the entrepreneur journey. So I wish you all the luck in the world and all the best because this B2B sales profession will really benefit. But unfortunately, we got to wrap up already. And I'm going to let the audience get to know you a little bit better on a personal front by asking you three quick questions, Brendan. And the first one is, which CEO or B2B SaaS or cloud company do you think is a must follow today?
1: That is a great question. Well, I mean... Certainly the Amit Bendoff, who's the CEO and founder for Gong, and his CMO, Udi Letter, are both people that I think are great falls. I think what Gong's done around their sort of messaging and vision has been huge success for them. So certainly I would follow them. Certainly Jason Lemkin, who's my former CEO, long ago, who's the founder of Saster. I think is, you know, sort of what he has to say for me is always resonating. and resonates for so many founders. And then, you know, I like what Scott Lees has to say. You know, obviously he's not a, a CEO and founder. He is of his sort of his own consulting business, but I think in the sales world, every time Scott speaks, I generally kind of nod my head.
0: Those so. are three great recommendations. Okay. Second question: As a leader of sales, which tool must every SaaS company be using for their sales organization today? Not your own.
1: I love Gong. Again, I've been involved with them since their early stages, but I know that like when I've consulted and advised for many startups through the years, the first thing I do is if they don't have Gong, buy it, or if they do connect me with it, because it's just like, you know, injecting you into the bloodstream of the sales organization, like immediately. And I I love that. It's like, if I were an NFL coach and I got a new job, the first thing I'd do is I'd watch game film, right? And I think that's what Gong does is really... Let you really get just into the DNA of the company and their message and story and customers and all that stuff. So that would be the one for me.
0: It's a really good one. And for listeners that aren't familiar with Gong, they are definitely the market leader in conversational intelligence and kind of moving to revenue intelligence. But now, the last question What advice would you give a very recent college graduate or even a first year kind of career professional who wants to be the next great? revenue leader for a B2B SaaS and cloud company? What advice do you give him, Brendan?
1: I mean, it's without context, it's hard, right? It's hard to know like that Ray Reich is somebody that I want to be following or that I should listen to when I just graduated from Santa Clara, right? Or St. Mary's, for that matter. But yeah, I would say, can you, through your network or people you know, find four or five sales leaders that they think you should follow, right? And then go listen to what they have to say and and introduce yourselves to them and try to build a relationship with them, you'd be surprised how often we get solicited a lot. Everyone generally is flattered when somebody reaches out and says, hey, I really respect what you have to say. And I would love to, you know, learn from you or learn under you if there was ever any opportunity to do that. That's what I would do. Just go directly to, you know, sales leaders that you respect. And again, granted when you graduate college, you know, it's not like you walk out with a list of like, hey, this is where I need to go necessarily. But if you can find five or six people, that have had real success in this business. I don't mean people that have hung out at Adobe or Oracle the last 30 years. I mean, people that have built businesses and companies. I would say follow them and try to connect with them. I had a guy named, his name was Alex Lynn. And this is, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And he was a firefighter in Southern California. And he reached out to me, didn't know me. He knew one person that knew me. And he reached out and said, I want to make a career shift. And, you know, I really respect what you've done. And and the way you've done it, and what there's any way that you could help me make this shift, I'll start at the bottom. I'll do whatever it takes. And I recommended him a couple of places. And now he's, I think, one of the most successful salespeople at Gong now as an account executive. Cause to me, that first it shows some courage that you reached out. Second, it shows that you're sort of willing to do Yeah, that would be one recommendation. Let's go out and find and connect with some VPs of sales or revenue leaders.
0: That's really great advice. And I'll tell you, for those people who are kind of earlier career and are thinking about as B2B sales a career, the B2B cloud industry in 2020 was about $350 billion of revenue in total. It's projected to be over $800 billion by 2025. And I was just talking to another guest who is forecasting the need for 300,000 more B2B sales professionals to get the industry to that level. So great opportunity and talking to people, been there, done that. What a great approach. But unfortunately, Brendan, this is the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being my guest. To our listening audience, thank you so much for your time. And if you are enjoying our guests and the topics that we discuss on the Metrics to Measure Up podcast, it would mean the world to us. If you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and provide us a rating and your comments and how we can make this show even better. Brendan, thank you so much for being our guest today.
1: Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.